we must have clear and discerning spiritual sight, not only about our own spiritual condition before the Lord, but also in regard to who Jesus is. The question that God's Word confronts us with this morning is, do we have clear and discerning spiritual sight? Do we personally see Jesus clearly? If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then I believe that you can find the passage, find Mark chapter 8, beginning on page 843, 843. And this morning, we're going to be considering Mark chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through that chapter, and into Mark chapter 9, verse 13. Now, it's hard to briefly summarize the first seven chapters of uh, Mark's Gospel because they are so action-packed. So for now, we'll just consider the highlights. Uh, the way has been prepared by John the Baptist, and Mark's Gospel, it's opened with the unmistakable claim that Jesus is the Christ. And as John prepared the way, God the Father declared from heaven that Jesus was His Son, in whom He was well pleased. And once he began his ministry, Jesus, he began healing people left and right. He healed lepers and cast out evil spirits. He forgave sins and called paralyzed men to stand up and walk. He even raised the dead to life when that was necessary. His power was not only displayed in his healing, but also in his teaching. He taught in the synagogue and he taught in public. He taught in parables and he explained them to his disciples in private. Though he called twelve Jewish men to follow him, he ministered to both Jews and Gentiles alike. By the time we move into chapter 7 and edge up to chapter 8, we should have a rough sense of who this man, Jesus, is. He must be good and gracious and God if he can forgive sins. He must be righteous if he can overthrow the work of evil and unclean spirits. He must be generous and compassionate and kind if he will minister to the afflicted even though he has been preaching and teaching and serving for hours on end without rest. He must be the Lord of creation if he can walk on water or calm the winds and the waves simply by speaking a word. Surely everyone who can see who Jesus is, right? Well, not exactly. In Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21, the sight of humanity is fully arrayed before us. In these verses, it becomes clear that Jews and Gentiles and even Jesus' own disciples do not see Jesus clearly. And this is the first point of the sermon, the sight of humanity arrayed. And I believe on the insert in the bulletin, if you open it up to the middle, there is an outline of the sermon. Um, the first point is the sight of humanity arrayed. And as we consider this, we're looking at verses 1 to 21, but for now, just read verses 1 to 13. Let me read Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Well, the miracle that we've just read about takes place in the Decapolis, which is a region that was dominated by Hellenistic culture, but inhabited by both Jews and Gentiles. While this miracle that Jesus performs pictures his ministry to both groups, what would stand out to Mark's readers is that Jesus has compassion upon hungry Gentiles, just as he had compassion upon 5,000 hungry Jews in Mark chapter 6. Taking these two episodes together, we have a picture of who the true people of God would one day be comprised of, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is the Savior of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And one of the things that's so striking and challenging about this passage is Jesus' sight. His initiation and care for these people who have been following Him, the shepherd, Jesus knows his sheep. If you look at verse 3 there, you can see that Jesus knows where they have come from. And this makes clear that Jesus isn't about building a, a large ministry under himself, but about caring for those who have come under his ministry. Not only does Jesus know his sheep, but he is also thinking ahead and considering the good of these people. He feels obligated to care for these people who have been listening to him teach about the kingdom of God. He wants to provide for them. He wants to protect them. And again, according to verse 3, he knows that if he sends them home now, they will collapse on their way. Jesus is truly a compassionate shepherd and he displays his compassion by thinking about what path these sheep are on where it is headed, and how he can serve them on that path. Christian, remember this. Remember that Jesus knows your need. He knows where you have come from, and he knows where you are headed, and he knows what you need on the way. Jesus knows that the sheep will soon be hungry, and he wants to feed them. Jesus' disciples, they don't seem to be in principle opposed to caring for these sheep. They're just not sure how to do it in this desolate place. This is what we see in verses 4 through 8 there. 
The disciples seem willing to feed these people, but they, they look at what they have and don't think that they have enough. This is where we see a connection with hunger and blindness. The people are hungry and they need to be fed. And the disciples are blind to the only one who can feed them. No matter how small the resources are. The disciples, they've been here before. A large, hungry crowd with no food. That's what happened in Mark 6 with Jesus and those 5,000 people. Jesus, he was able to satisfy 5,000 people in that circumstance before. Why didn't the disciples think that he could do it again? Why, why didn't they ask him, Jesus, will you just feed these people? They didn't because they were blind. The disciples still do not yet fully see and understand who Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, we are those who have come to faith in Christ and we know who He is. And yet often we find ourselves in the same place. Places we've been before time and time again, don't we? Let's be sure to call out to Christ in prayer for help. Now it, it must be recognized that there are significant similarities between the feeding of the 4,000 here in Mark 8 and the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. In both, we see Jesus' compassion on display. A strikingly similar conversation takes place between Jesus and the disciples. The crowd is instructed to sit down in both places. Jesus gives thanks for the bread. He breaks the bread. The disciples distribute the food and the people eat and are satisfied and there are leftovers. While it's true that there are incredible similarities between this feeding and the feeding of the 5,000, it's also true that there are remarkable and significant differences too. For example, the number of baskets full at the end is different. Twelve loaves from the feeding of the 5,000 seems to be hearkening back to the twelve tribes of Israel with the purpose of pointing forward to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and how appropriate in a largely Jewish area. Here in Mark 8, the seven baskets full left over in the context of Jesus' ministry to both Jews and Gentiles, and reality, predominantly Gentiles here, seems to be underscoring the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. The Apostle Paul writes about this uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Jesus, He perfectly unites in Himself Jews and Gentiles, as one people, the one new people of God. Um, I, I commend Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19 to you for a detailed study, but let me just read uh, now what Paul says in verses 17 through 19. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who, who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's also not lose sight that this miracle is a miracle of massive proportions. Out of seven loaves and just a few fish, Jesus feeds at least 4,000 men. It was highly likely that women and children were there as well, so the number uh, could be significantly higher than 4,000. What we need to remember here is that Jesus can take something incredibly small and multiply it. 
And after this incredible miracle, Jesus and his disciples, they, they cross the Sea of Galilee again, where Jesus is immediately confronted by the Pharisees in verses 11 through 13. They have re-entered territory that's predominantly Jewish, and the Pharisees who greet Jesus demand a sign from him. Did the Pharisees really want a sign? There's been lots of conflict in this gospel up to this point between Jesus and the religious leaders. Were the Pharisees really hungry to know whether or not this man Jesus was truly the Messiah? I don't think so. And Mark seems to indicate that they began to question Jesus with the intention of testing or tempting him. They had a predisposition toward Jesus that was not positive. They didn't just want a run-of-the-mill miracle as if feeding four or five thousand people were not enough or casting out a legion of demons was not enough or healing a demon-possessed girl from a distance or raising a little girl from the dead were not enough. No, they wanted a sign from heaven. They wanted to see some kind of great apocalyptic sign as if the world were ending before they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. What else were all of Jesus' miracles other than signs from heaven? Or signs that the king of the kingdom of heaven had come to earth? It's not surprising that this request grieves Jesus. Here he is confronted with the blindness of the Pharisees. And he is even grieved by this. We see that through his deep sigh mentioned there in verse 12. His whole life and ministry was a sign from heaven. The Pharisees, they didn't see it. But do the disciples. Well, read Mark chapter 8, verse 14 to 21 now. Mark chapter 8, verse 14 to 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus and his disciples, they've once again crossed the Sea of Galilee. In other words, were taken back over to the side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus fed the four thousand. They've likely landed near Bethsaida on their way up to Caesarea Philippi. And Mark points out something fairly ironic. The disciples, uh, they have forgotten to bring bread. Well, they have one loaf, but it, it seems as though from their perspective it's not enough. And Jesus uses that one loaf of bread that they're probably talking about as a launching point off for some teaching. He warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. But what, is, what is Jesus trying to say to his disciples? He's not ridiculing them about the fact that they've only got one loaf of bread. He can take care of bread. That's not a problem for him. 
Now, if you remember from verses 11 through 13, the Pharisees, they were hungering for a sign from heaven. Just like the Pharisees, we, we learn in other gospels, gospel accounts that, that Herod wanted to see Jesus perform some miracles. The Pharisees and Herod wanted proof of who Jesus claimed to be. They were willfully blind to all of the evidence that had piled up before them in Jesus' life and ministry. They did not believe. What about you? My non-Christian friend, how are you responding to all of the evidence that's piling up about Jesus in your life? Don't, don't turn a blind eye to Jesus and His compassion and His mighty power and His mercy. Jesus certainly doesn't want His disciples to miss His mighty power. And so He seems to be warning them that they, they actually may share in the unbelief of the Pharisees, that they too are blind to who Jesus truly is. If they could see clearly that Jesus was God's Messiah, then they wouldn't worry about how much bread they have with them. They would trust Jesus as their compassionate shepherd to provide for them. Instead, they only seem to be worried about having no bread. They don't yet see. And through a series of questions there in verses 17 and 18, Jesus connects perception, sight, with understanding, faith. His questions are no doubt sincere, but they are no less allusions to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where the people of Israel are rebuked for their unbelief and blindness. His questions are not only an implicit rebuke for their blindness, but they also have a summarizing effect of the two events of the mass feedings, the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. When pressed, we might even be inclined to say that Jesus' questions have a summarizing effect about the whole of His ministry up to this point in Mark's Gospel. Neither the Jews, nor the Gentiles, nor the Pharisees, and not even the disciples really see Jesus as He ought to be seen. And Jesus, He very patiently tries to provoke the disciples' memory with these questions in verses 19 and 20. He kind of offers these leading questions, leading the disciples to the information that He wants them to remember. How many loaves? How many leftovers? How many baskets? How many leftovers? And he leads them to confess with their own mouths that he has fed more than 9,000 people out of virtually no resources. Not only that, but that there was food left over in each case. With all of this evidence before them, he closes his teaching with one question in verse 21. Do you not yet understand. Jesus was asking them if they understood who He was. Did they yet understand that He was the Messiah? Did they believe? Did they see? The Pharisees and Herod certainly didn't see. If the disciples didn't see, then it seems like no one really sees who Jesus is and what He came to do. The blindness of humanity is fully arrayed here. In Mark's narrative, that question by Jesus, do you not yet understand? It's left hanging. It's left hanging there. And there is an awkward but deliberate pivot to the next scene. So let's turn now and consider our second point, the sight of the disciples portrayed. And as we do, read 
Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. Now, keeping Jesus' question in mind, do you not yet understand? Begin reading in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This healing, it has to be one of the oddest accounts in Mark's gospel. And yet, it's unique to Mark's gospel. It's not recorded in any other gospel. In no other gospel is this miracle recounted. In no other gospel and in no other instance does Jesus ask a question after he's touched someone in an effort to heal them. What happens when Jesus goes anywhere happens here in Bethsaida. People bring a person in need to Jesus. This man is blind and they wanted Jesus to touch him. But this healing is not like the others. Jesus touched the man, not just once, not just twice, but three times. Now, if you notice that, what happens when this man comes to Jesus? Look at verse 23. And he took the blind man by the hand. There's the first touch. Jesus takes this man by the hand, leads him out of the village, and then he spits and touches his eyes. And then he touches them again. Now, before we get to the very interesting questions about why does it take so many touches, we should recognize that Jesus is leading this man out of the village. Jesus, he's no showman. He probably leads this man outside the village in part to diminish the size of the crowd gathered around and watching him. This would allow for a small group to witness the miracle, probably the man's friends who brought him, and most importantly, Jesus' disciples, who do not yet see clearly. Now, given the context of what has gone before and what will soon take place in Mark's gospel, this miracle aptly portrays the sight of the disciples. In Mark chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus asked the disciples if they could see. And here in verse 23, Jesus asked this blind man the same question after he touches him the first time. The man sees, but not clearly, not as he should, and nor as he would. For when Jesus touches him, the second time when he touches his eyes, he sees everything clearly, as verse 25 says. Even more than portraying the sight of the disciples, this miracle reminds us that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. It reveals to us that He is the one whom Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, prophesied about. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, we're told that the Lord would come to save his people, and that when he does, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, which is what Jesus did in Mark 7. That's why we read Isaiah chapter 35 earlier in the service. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 35 here right before our eyes and his disciples' eyes. Well, 
once the man sees clearly, Jesus instructs him not to go into the village. Jesus wants to keep this miracle concealed. Time and time again, Jesus instructs people not to tell others about what he has done, mainly because he wants to teach what kind of Messiah he is. And it is not the kind of Messiah that everyone is thinking about or looking for. Jesus tries to do just that with his disciples, especially in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. The purpose of this miracle is not to portray how people come to faith in Christ. No, the purpose of this miracle is first to reveal who Jesus is, and secondly to portray the disciples' sight at this point in Jesus' ministry, which is what we see displayed in the next section, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 uh, through chapter 9, verse 1. The disciples' vision needs to be sharpened. It needs to be clarified about what kind of Messiah Jesus is and will be. So let's turn now and consider our third point, the sight of the disciples displayed. Read Mark chapter 8, beginning there in verse 27. We'll read through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling, to the, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, after reading that section together, I, I hope that you can see how that kind of two-stage miracle portrays the disciples and especially Peter's sight. Peter sees Jesus just as the man sees people walking around looking like trees, but he doesn't see very clearly what kind of Messiah Jesus will be. Jesus will be a suffering Messiah, which is a Messiah that Peter can't see clearly. Beginning in verse 27, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples were traveling northward to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a city with a very religious history. Paganism it was always kind of always run rampant in the city. It was a, 
has a great history of idol worship stretching back even to the Old Testament era when its inhabitants worshipped Baal. As time wore on and as different cultures moved into the city, those in Caesarea Philippi adopted the prevailing religion of the culture. And during Jesus' day, it's likely that there was some remaining worship of the Greek gods. But it is also likely that worship of Caesar had taken center stage in that city. So it is in this context of pagan gods that Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? And notice that the answers are very Jewish. John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet, virtually anyone but the Messiah. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, Herod wondered if Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. If Jesus were the appearance of Elijah, as according to Malachi chapter 3 and 4, then everyone would know that the day of the Lord was at hand, which means that the Messiah would soon appear. Some also thought that Jesus was just another one of the prophets. Jesus doesn't leave the question there. He directs his question right at his disciples in verse 29. And Peter, he seems to answer kind of on behalf of the group in verse 30. Peter answers that Jesus is the Christ. This is the great Christological confession that Mark has been working up to in his gospel. In a city that proclaims Caesar as Lord, Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. Peter appears to see. This is the climax. Peter appears to see. It seems as though Peter now sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. John the Baptist and Elijah and all the prophets spoke God's word. But in Jesus, we have God's final word. The supreme revelation of God as Colossians chapter 1 Verses 15 through 20 tells us. Jesus again pleads for secrecy in verse 30. His disciples may understand that he is the Messiah, but they don't yet understand what kind of Messiah Jesus will be. According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus confirms that Peter sees. But Peter and the disciples need to see more clearly still. Verse 31 sounds like something of a transition when Mark emphasizes that Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer. Jesus teaches them that the Jewish Messiah must be rejected by the Jewish leaders. The rejection is a rejection to the point of death, but this death would not be the end. Jesus would rise again, and it is only at that point that the disciples would see clearly. It is at that point that they would go out and begin to tell the truth about Jesus, about what kind of Messiah He really is. But here in Mark 8, they are not there yet. Mark helps us to understand in verse 32 that Jesus was very clear in His teaching. He spoke plainly. And it is perhaps Jesus' clarity that unsettles Peter and the other disciples. Never before had Jesus stated with such clarity that His mission was one that not merely led to death, but led through death to life. But Peter and the disciples seem to get caught up on that death part of Jesus' mission. Peter thought that Jesus was crazy to be talking about death. When the Messiah, according to Jewish tradition, was to come and conquer, Peter thought that Jesus was the one who had fuzzy vision concerning the mission of the Messiah. 
Peter did not understand what type of enemy Jesus had come to conquer. He came to conquer a more powerful enemy than an oppressive government. Jesus came to conquer death itself. Dear friends, I, I hope that you truly see what kind of Messiah Jesus is. He is the kind of Messiah that we all need. Uh, listen to what, what Don Carson said about this subject. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an economist. If He had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, He would have sent us a politician. If He had perceived that our greatest need was health, He would have sent us a doctor. But He perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our death, and He sent us a Savior. Friends, we need a Savior. We have all sinned against God, and we stand in danger of facing His eternal and just punishment. We need to be saved from that punishment God sent Jesus to live the life that we all should have lived, but haven't. Jesus, He was obedient to God. He was committed to God's mission of salvation. And so He died on the cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who had ever turned from their sin and put their faith in Him. God raised Jesus from the dead three days later, vindicating Him. And proving to us all that Jesus conquered the enemy that's pursuing us. If we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we will be saved. And we will show that we truly see what kind of Messiah He really is. Do you see Jesus with clarity? Have you repented and believed? Come to Jesus in faith for healing and salvation. Peter has true but unclear vision. Peter sees that Jesus is the Messiah, but Peter is confused by Jesus' insistence on death. So Peter rebukes in an attempt to teach him about the true nature of the Messiah. Peter seems to be acting on the, the kind of whole the disciple band. Jesus knows this, and so he turns around. Mark, Mark makes this clear. He, he turns around to make sure the whole group shares in his rebuke. These are the thoughts of Satan, Jesus says. Now, Jesus is not calling Peter Satan, but rather that the idea that the Messiah must not suffer is satanic. This is always what Satan wanted Jesus to do, to claim his kingdom without suffering. If you were to read Matthew or Luke's account of Satan's temptations, it would become clear that this is indeed a satanic thought, that Jesus could be the Savior of the world just by worshiping Satan instead of going to the cross. This is indeed a satanic thought. But Jesus, praise God, is committed to God's plan, which involves suffering and humiliation and self-denial. Peter and the disciples' ideas are restricted to fleshly categories. And in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33, we're given the picture of who the Messiah is and what He must suffer. And it is in this context that Jesus explains what it means to be a disciple of the Messiah. 
And that's found in verses 34 to 38. Jesus tells the crowd and the disciples, if anyone is to follow Him, meaning to be one of His disciples, then they must be committed to the way of suffering, the way of the suffering Messiah, the way of self-denial and cross-bearing. And what does self-denial and cross-bearing look like? Well, self-denial and cross-bearing does not mean denying your every desire. If you denied your every desire, then you would never eat and you would have a short life and we would have no church. So when we talk of self-denial, we're not talking about some form of strict asceticism. No, self-denial means examining your desires and denying those desires which deny God. Those desires which seek to rule your life need to be denied. For God is the one who is to rule your life. Self-denial is repentance. It's denying the world and the flesh and the devil. And what about cross-bearing? This passage makes clear that truly following Jesus is not limited to a confession of Him, but it also means actively following in His way. Jesus calls us to take up our cross. Cross Cross-bearing seems to be more public than self-denial in some respects. It seems to carry with it the idea of suffering because you publicly identify with Jesus and His cross. Self-denial and cross-bearing mean choosing faithfulness over comfort. Self-denial and cross-bearing means sharing the truth of God's Word, though it may cost you a significant relationship or even your reputation. Children, youth, young adults, uh, for you it might mean being made fun of at school because... You love Jesus and want to honor Him. Or for your parents, it might mean that they are disliked in their workplace because they love Jesus. Children, youth, young adults, as your, as your parents leave for work in the morning, encourage them to go and work for Jesus. Just as they encourage you to go and live for Jesus at school. Brothers and sisters, as you follow Jesus, don't be afraid of what you might lose but look forward to what you will gain. In verses 35 to 38, Jesus spells out what reward awaits those who deny themselves and take up their cross. Those who indulge their selfish desires may gain the world, but they will lose their souls. Their lives and pursuits will mark them out as those who have surrendered to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus makes clear that there is nothing worth gaining in this world if it means being eternally separated from Him in the next. Those who are ashamed of Jesus, those who forsake Him, will be forsaken by Him on the last day. There is a great cost to following Jesus. You will certainly lose the indulgence of your sinful pleasures. Those are fleeting anyway. And what's more, they're destructive. You may even lose your reputation, whether before non-Christians or before those who profess to be Christians. But isn't it better to be thought of well by God than men? Yes, there is a great cost in following Jesus, but there is also a great reward. Did you notice that in these verses? Did you notice the reward? Look at those verses again. For those who deny their sinful pleasures, those who repent and joyfully take up the way of Christ, they will be saved. They will not forfeit their souls. They will not be forsaken on the last day. Instead, when Jesus comes in His Father's glory and with the holy angels, He will bid you come into His kingdom. You may lose this world, but you will have Jesus 
And more importantly, Jesus will have you. Now verse 1 of chapter 9 is somewhat difficult. It serves as a bridge between what we've been thinking about and what lies ahead. Jesus once again emphasizes the theme of sight. Some of those gathered around Jesus and listening to His teaching would not die before they saw the kingdom come with power. This Jesus meant as an encouragement to His listeners. He wanted to encourage them to take up the way of the Messiah with the hope that the power of the kingdom would soon arrive. Mark takes this statement by Jesus and connects it to a display of the power of the kingdom in Jesus' transfiguration. It is in Jesus' transfiguration that the Father conveys who He sees in Jesus. So let's turn now and consider our final point. The sight of the Father conveyed. Read Mark chapter 9. Begin there in verse 2. We're going to read to verse 13. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a mountain, a high mountain, by themselves. And He was transfigured before them and His clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach him and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus and Peter said to Jesus Rabbi it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah for he did not know what to say for they were terrified and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say, that first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now Mark connects Jesus' statement about some seeing the kingdom come in its power with Jesus' transfiguration. The some who are standing here in verse 1 of Mark 9 seems to be referring to Peter, James, and John. Uh, Mark tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them. And, uh, and what seems to, that seems to mean is that Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of the glory that Christ would be clothed in at His second coming. Mark chapter 8 verse 38 clearly spoke of Christ's second coming and here these three disciples are given a glimpse of what it would look like for the kingdom of God to come in power. One wonders what Moses and Elijah were doing there. Uh, perhaps they stood as a testimony to Jesus reminding the disciples of both the law and the prophets pointing forward to Christ. Mark tells us that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking but not what they were talking about. Luke's gospel tells us that they were talking about the departure or exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The conversation is not essential to Mark's point, but the next thing that happens is, as it gets back to Mark's concern about the disciples' spiritual sight, Peter is terrified by what is going on, so much so that he recommends building three tabernacles. Don't you love Peter? He's just there. Uh, he says something even though he doesn't know what to say. 
we don't know what to say, Peter. But we're just like him. We don't like those awkward silences, you know, these things that are going on. Just sit there. And then we've got to jump in and say something. That's Peter. He's got to jump in and say something. Let's build three tabernacles. This is, this is good that we're here. He's terrified. He's attempting, I think, to honor Jesus and Elijah and Moses with this recommendation. But what Peter doesn't see is that Jesus, he's not on the same plane as Moses and Elijah. Peter does not recognize that this Messiah is the Son of God. A cloud envelops them on a mountain, just as a cloud enveloped Moses on the mountain when God revealed His law to the people of Israel. Now on this mountain, God reveals His Son. He conveys to the disciples how He sees Jesus. In verse 7, God the Father reiterates what He has said at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. At Jesus' baptism, baptism, the Father also communicated that Jesus was His Son whom He loved. Jesus is not just some prophet. He is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. According to the Father, what this means is that He is to be listened to. No longer are the disciples to put forward their own ideas about what the, mission, the Messiah's mission would look like. Rather, they should be committed to listening and learning from Jesus what His mission would be. His mission would be accomplishing the salvation of sinners through His death and resurrection. When the Father is done conveying His great love for His Son and His call for listening, the disciples to listen to Him, they are suddenly left alone with the one they are to listen to and follow. Jesus, notice, He pleads again for secrecy, even amongst these three, but this time... It's a conditional secrecy. There will come a point in time when they can share what they've been encouraged to keep a secret. After Jesus' resurrection, they may all share. They may share what they have heard and seen. Just as they were confused about why Jesus had to die, so they were also confused by Jesus saying that He would rise from the dead. Before they could even reach the bottom of the mountain, they ask Jesus about his comment in verses 11 through 13. The, the disciples' question here is about Elijah. It's about Elijah related to Jesus' comment about rising from the dead. The disciples, you see, they, they believed in the resurrection. But they believed that the resurrection would signal the last days. So basically they asked, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Doesn't, doesn't Elijah have to come first before the resurrection? The disciples are remembering Malachi chapter 3 and 4 where the Lord promises that Elijah would come to prepare the way of the Lord. But if you remember, Mark's Gospel opened with John the Baptist taking up the mantle of Elijah, attire and all, preparing the way for the Lord. Elijah had come, Jesus says. John stood in his place to restore the people of Israel to a right relationship with God. John encouraged the people to repent. But in the end, John was killed. They had done to him everything they'd wished. Both John the Baptist and the Son of Man would suffer and face rejection just as the Scriptures had foretold. Because Elijah had come, the way for the resurrection has been prepared. Jesus and His disciples now begin the long road to Jerusalem. And on that road, Jesus continues to explain to His disciples 
the mission that is set before them. He continues to sharpen their focus and clarify their vision by teaching them over and over again the suffering of the cross and the glory of the resurrection must take place in and through Him. Well, the disciples, they will continue to continue in their struggle to see. At this point in Jesus' ministry, they see Him, but He looks like a tree walking around. The point that Mark has labored to make clear through the disciples' strained sight is that Jesus is the Son of God, God's chosen Messiah. The question that this section of Mark's Gospel forces us to ask ourselves is, do we see Jesus as God sees Jesus? Do we see Him as He is supposed to be seen? Do we see Him with eyes of faith? If we do see Jesus as He is supposed to be seen, to be seen with eyes of faith, then our lives will take self-denying, cross-bearing shape. And as we conclude, we need to come back to the blind man. As we reflect on all of Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 9, verse 13, and particularly Jesus' interaction with the blind man, we are humbly reminded that if our blindness is to be healed, the blindness which, apart from the work of the Spirit, the blindness which all humanity shares in, we are reminded that if we are to see Jesus as He is meant to be seen and as the Father sees Him, then our only hope is in the only one who can heal. We must go to Him and beg Him to heal us. And as we do, we must be confident of this. His compassion for the hungry and the blind is so great that He is pleased to feed His sheep and extend His healing hands. Let's pray together.